Matthew chapter 5. Before uh, we went away, oh, the kids can go with John downstairs. I'm sorry about that. Before we went away, I was teaching a series of messages on the Beatitudes. I'd like to pick up on that today. This will be my third installment on the Beatitudes. Now, my series here on the Beatitudes is not an exhaustive study. Um, it's not, certainly not an exhaustive uh, exposition on the text. These may well be some of the most often preached verses in all of the Bible. I offer to you just one facet of this enormous and brilliant gem of Scripture. I'm sharing with you what I've seen in it. And I believe that what we see in, in uh, the Beatitudes are the characteristics of kingdom citizenship. They represent the, the character of kingdom citizens. In the Beatitudes, Jesus sets forth both the nature and the aspirations of his citizens. We at the bridge, we're learning this. Like most people, we're in the process of learning what it means to be, to be his. The word blessed in the Greek, I've told you before, it's worth repeating, makarios, means happy or blessed. But this is a happiness, this is a blessedness that comes from the inside out. It's not a sense of being happy. It's not a sense of being blessed because of external conditions. It's not a happiness or a blessedness that comes from external comfort or from entertainment at the moment. It's something much deeper. It's something internal. It's a blessedness, it's a happiness that's at the core of your being, and it's not subject to external circumstances. So regardless of what the, the circumstances of our lives may be at the moment, we can, we can own this blessedness, this happiness, this characteristic of kingdom citizenship, citizenship can still be ours. This is the word that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 5. Today we'll look at the third beatitude, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. But before I do that, let me just give you a brief review on the first two. The first beatitude, the one we looked at when I began this series, was blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And here in Scripture, poor speaks of a lowly beggar, one who is crouched down in humility. The person who is poor in spirit recognizes that they have no assets. They have no spiritual assets. We know and we admit, we own the reality that spiritually we are bankrupt in and of ourselves. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. We, another way to say it is this. We bring nothing to the table, but God brings everything to the table. And i got to tell you what, embracing that truth, it's exhilarating. It's liberating. It sets us free from a performance-based Christianity. I bring nothing to the table. He brings everything to the table. He has everything. All I have is me that he already created. The scripture tells us 
that to the poor in spirit belong the kingdom of heaven. Now, a kingdom encompasses the sphere of influence of the king. God's kingdom is, is his dynamic rule and reign. It's his assertive authority over things, over the enemy, over the enemy's deeds. The poor in spirit are recognized by the kingdom characteristic of humility. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. The second beatitude we looked at was, Blessed are those who mourn, for they would be comforted. And to mourn here means to lament or to wail. This is not a mild weeping. It's not sitting there and watching a Hallmark commercial and the tear trickles out, out of your eye down the side of your cheek. This is not that kind of mourning. This is from your gut kind of mourning. This is the snot-producing kind of mourning, right? When you cry with everything you got. <laughs> We're talking out-of-control wailing from the depth of your being. That's what this word mourning means here. How odd that he would say, blessed are those who mourn. Now, universally, all the different commentators I look like, looked at said that this verse is relating to sin. But more accurately, I think it means this. It's talking about the grief that's caused when there's separation between us and God. When there's a brokenness in that relationship, which is the fruit of sin, right? Any action or activity that creates a separation between us and God, that kind of, we mourn and we wail over that. Grief at a broken relationship with our loving Heavenly Father. It could also include grief at the condition of our world, our nation, the church, the lost, our own cold and hardened hearts at times. So to mourn, in this context, blessed are those who mourn, means to be brokenhearted. Mourning is a breaking of that cold-heartedness. Cold-heart-heartedness. Is that a word? So there's a blessedness in brokenness. Psalm 51, 17 says that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The broken are humble. They're teachable. The broken are often unoffendable. The broken aren't self-sufficient or self-reliant or selfishly ambitious. To these to these broken people, from the depth of their being, completely broken, belongs the promises of God. Belongs the promise of comfort. Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. What does that mean? That means that they will experience God's loving embrace. Blessed are those who are broken, whose hearts are broken over a separated or severed relationship with the Father. They will be comforted. They will experience the embrace of God. Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Blessed are those who grieve over a broken relationship with God because God will embrace them lovingly. It's an end to that separation. Those who mourn, according to the Beatitudes, are recognized by the kingdom characteristic, the trait of brokenness. So what have we seen so far in the first two? Blessed are the poor in spirit, they're humble. Blessed are the merciful, they're broken. And I explained to you brokenness, it doesn't mean that you lose any of your strength or power. It's, a, it's more like when a wild horse is broken. 
The horse still retains all of its strength, all of its power. It's simply submitted to the will of the rider. That kind of brokenness. He's the rider. And we're submitted to his will. So blessed are the poor in spirit. They're humble. Blessed are the mournful. They're broken. They're yielding to the spirit of God. To us belong the kingdom of heaven and the comfort of God, the embrace of God. So let me read through the Beatitudes again, and then we'll take a look at the third one, okay? So if you're in Matthew 5, I'll begin at verse 1. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up to the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way... They persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this gem of scripture. Father, I barely see but one facet of it. I pray that you give me grace to communicate it well to your people today. But more than that, Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes to see all the facets of your truth contained in these words. I ask this in Jesus' name. So the third beatitude is this. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. We're citizens of a seemingly (laughs) upside-down kingdom, contrary to the kingdom of the world. In God's kingdom, the first are last. The last are first. Those who exalt themselves are humble. Those who who humble themselves are exalted. To save your life, you have to lose it. The greatest is servant of all. To the poor belong the kingdom, And it's the meek who inherit the earth. Really a strange kingdom. Truly, the words of 1 Corinthians 1.25 apply. The foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. I feel like I'm on a continual journey of learning the truth of Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. His ways are not our ways. (laughs) They're higher than our ways. High as the heavens are above the earth, so much higher are his ways than our ways, and his thoughts than our thoughts. His kingdom operates differently than the kingdom of this world. We see that expressed exquisitely in the Beatitudes. So to operate and function in this heavenly kingdom, (laughs) we need to change the way we think. We need to do, as it says in Romans 12, too, the not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Our whole lives, we have been trained, we've been conditioned to operate according to the pattern of this world. From our childhood on up, every day, all that we experience, the way we interact with people around us, the way we went to school, what happened in our homes, the way we're treated on our jobs all too often the way things operate in churches. For those who have been believers a long time, 
it's really been patterned after the methods of this world. And we wonder why it doesn't work. In the Beatitudes, Jesus is declaring a new pattern. A pattern for his kingdom. The pattern the citizens of his kingdom will operate under. You know, according to the pattern, pattern of the world, and all too much of the church, we believe that bigger is better, that might makes right, and the, the one with the greatest army conquers the earth, the weak are despised, the meek inherit nothing. We need to be transformed if we're going to be kingdom citizens, if we're going to have the characteristics of, of sons and daughters in his kingdom. We need our minds renewed. We need to change the way we think. So what is meekness? Meekness means a mildness of disposition, a gentleness of spirit. Strong's Concordance adds an additional paragraph describing meekness. Here's an excerpt from Strong's. It means a gentleness or meekness Gentleness or meekness is the opposite of self-assertiveness and self-interest. It stems from trust in God. Remember that. Meekness stems from trust in God. Trust in his goodness and control over any situation. The gentle person is not occupied with the self at all. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, not the human will. Eugene Peterson, in his take from the message on, on this verse in the Beatitude, seems to echo well what Strong's wrote, wrote about meekness. This is the way he puts it. He says, you're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. I like that. One of my uh, favorite commentators from the blue, the, the website blueletterbible.org is David Guzik. He does a really good job. He's a Calvary Chapel guy. Sometimes he leans a little bit more to his dispensational look on things, but his take on scripture, by and large, is pretty good. And so when I'm doing study on the word, I usually like to take a peek and see what, what he's written. And th this is something he had to say about, about this third beatitude. He says, in the vocabulary of the ancient Greek language, the meek person was not passive or easily pushed around. The idea behind the word meek was strength under control, like a strong stallion that was trained to do the job instead of running wild. Kind of fits with the whole brokenness thing before it, doesn't it? To be meek means to show a willingness to submit and work under proper authority. It also shows a willingness to disregard one's own rights or privileges. So yeah, to operate in this kingdom, we will need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. This contradicts our American culture and our human nature, doesn't it? I mean, just say the word submit. Doesn't it just grate against your soul? Grates against mine. <laughs> Guzik adds, it's one thing 
for me to admit my own spiritual bankruptcy. But what if somebody else does it for me? Do I react meekly? Vincent's word studies of the New Testament says this about meekness. Christian meekness is based on humility, which is not a natural quality, but an outgrowth of a renewed nature. It implies submission. And it's not in our human nature to be submissive. The popular Christian author and theologian, John Piper, I like most of what I read of Piper, defines meekness this way. He says it's the power to observe, excuse me, it's the power to absorb adversity and criticism without lashing back. I got a lot more room to grow in meekness. So the meek is submissive. Now I know how abrasive that word can be. Especially if you've been in situations that have you've experienced abuse. But submission is a biblical word. And it's a biblical concept. And so I'm convinced that even though most of us have had some type of bad experience with it, there's got to be a healthy expression of it. There's got to be some kind of right way to do this thing. And I think there were clues to it in the Beatitudes. I think there were clues to it in the Scripture. And so I want to try and unpack that. I think this might be helpful. So how do we acquire meekness? If you have Bibles, turn to Psalm 37. I think in Psalm 37, we have laid out for us a roadmap to acquire meekness in a healthy way, to acquire meekness in a biblical way, in a life-giving way. I'm convinced that when Jesus spoke the Beatitudes, he was quoting, when he spoke this Beatitude, this third one, he was quoting Psalm 37, verse 11 which says, the meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. Sounds a whole lot like the meek will inherit the earth, doesn't it? I think, that's, I think Jesus had Psalm 37, 11 in mind during his Sermon on the Mount. That was one of the texts he was referring to. Verse 9 of Psalm 37 gives us our next clue. But those who hope in, wait for the Lord, will inherit the land. So Psalm 37 seems to be saying that the meek are those who hope in or who wait for the Lord. Verses 3 to 9 of Psalm 37 show the way. Like I said, it's a road map giving clear, specific directions to meekness. Verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. The first key The first step to meekness is trusting God. It's believing that he's for us and that he's not against us. One of the life lessons, one of the things God's been teaching me in this last season is to trust him. He told me, he's revealed to me that often he uh, he will place before us choices. And he gives us choices not just so that he'll test us, and that we can face and hopefully pass some kind of test, he gives us choices because he wants us to choose to trust him. And he wants us to choose to trust him because trust is the foundation of relationship. 
He wants us to go deep in relationship with him. So he lays before us options. It's like two trees in the garden. And he wants us to choose the choice that says, I trust you. I trust that you have my best interest at heart. So the, the path to meekness begins, I think, according to Psalm 37, 3, where we trust God. We begin with that foundation of relationship. God gives us choices to cultivate trust because trust is the basis of any relationship, of any healthy relationship. God wants us to choose him. He wants us to choose to trust him. And look, if we're going to choose to trust him, and this is how meekness is developed, if we're going to choose to trust him, doesn't it make sense that we have to find ourselves in circumstances where trusting him is required? I'm not saying that those are fun circumstances, but if I'm going to learn to trust him, then I have to be in a situation where I have that choice. I can choose to trust him or I can choose to trust me. I can choose to do it his way or my way. And he seems to let me take the test over and over and over again until I pass. <laughs> so first, verse 3 is trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy good pasture. Verse 4, the next step, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Next is we find true pleasure, satisfaction, and happiness in him alone. In intimacy with him. You see the relational connection? Delighting yourself in him. So the kids are downstairs, right? When I want to delight myself in Nadine, right? This is, a, this is an intimate thing. This is a relational thing. It's a tender thing. It's a wonderful thing. He calls us to delight ourselves in him. I got to see my daughter last week. And I got to delight myself in her. It was wonderful. She tells me she has healing hugs. Lisa's healing hugs. I believe she does have healing hugs. Because I feel extraordinary love, extraordinarily loved. When she embraces me, there was delight in that moment. I think it's a relational concept. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. There's that trust word again. Commit your way to him, trust in him, and he'll do this. Both, word, both the words commit and trust are talking about relationship. Commit here means literally to roll. It means to roll the weight of something off of your shoulders onto his shoulders. I can remember as a young pastor, I was completely overwhelmed by the needs of the people. My heart would be broken. I would, I would love and care so deeply, it would crush me. I remember talking to an older pastor and telling, asking him, saying, dude, how do you do this? Because I'm getting crushed every week. And he told me this verse, Psalm 37, 5. And he explained to me how to commit my way to the Lord, to trust him, and he would do this. That the word commitment to roll the weight off of my shoulders and on his shoulders. And I got to tell you, for a long time, I think for years afterwards, I would find myself overwhelmed, carrying the weight, the burden of the needs and concerns and the issues and the troubles and the problems that the people in my church were living with. And I would come before God when I pray, and I would, I would pray, Lord, I commit this to you. And just like I'm bending my shoulders now, that's exactly what I would do. And I would do it this way, apparently, because it's the only way I'm bending. 
Lord, I just commit this to you. I roll this off of my shoulders on your shoulders. I would physically do that action to roll it off of me and onto him. And I have to trust then he's going to carry it. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust him. Lord, I'm going to take this off of my shoulders and I'm going to let you carry the weight. Remember, his yoke is easy. His burden is light. If I'm getting crushed by this thing, I'm doing something wrong. <laughs> I could probably go back and look at trust and find out what it is. And after rolling it onto God, we leave the execution of justice. We, live the, we leave the execution of vindication in his hands. Because verse 6 says, He will make righteousness shine like the dawn and, and the justice of your cause like the new day sun. I leave it in your hands, O oh God. You deal with it. Verse 7 says to be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. So the next step in meekness, I think that's laid out for here in this roadmap of Psalm 37, is we patiently wait on God. We don't freak out <laughs> when things look like they aren't going our way. And we don't frantically try to fix it. This is the practice of meekness. I don't know if anybody to show hands, but I know that there's some of us here, that's, you know, that's who we are. We're a fixer. There's a problem, and we want to put our hands to it. We want to solve the problem. And I think meekness is especially difficult for us. It's not only difficult for the fixers among us, it's difficult for the really, really talented and gifted fixers among us. There are some of us on our jobs, the accolades that we get is because we can fix things. We're the problem solvers. Let me talk to the men for a second. We can understand this. I, I had to learn early on in marriage, Nadine didn't need me to fix anything. She's a very, very capable woman, as you well know. But you see, I'm a pretty good fixer. I'm a pretty good problem solver. And so when there's a problem on the job, I jump in there with both hands. I use all the expertise I have. I resolve the problem and go on to the next one. So I come home, and it's a young married couple, and Nadine's telling me about problems. And what do I do? I go into fix-it mode. I want to solve the problem. She doesn't need me to solve the problem. What she wanted was a hug. <laughs> what she wanted was for me to embrace her and to hold her. She could solve the problems herself. She's smart. She's intelligent. She's capable. Oh, my goodness, vastly more capable than me. That's the picture between us and God. How do we become meek? We resist jumping in and try to fix it when it looks like it's all going crazy. And we wait. We wait patiently. We embrace God. We wait on him. Just like a husband comes home to his wife and he hugs her. Remember this old uh, comic strip I'd seen it when we were first married, about the time I learned the same lesson. I think the comic strip was called Kathy. Anybody remember a comic strip called Kathy? And so Kathy's boyfriend comes in, and she explains a problem to her, her boyfriend, and he offers her, like, the seven-step plan how to fix the problem. And he walks out. And she says, men, all solutions, no sympathy. <laughs> But she wanted that they was to be embraced. That's this moment. This is the practice of meekness. 
that when you can fix it, you're weak for God to step in and him to do what he needs to do. Now, in the process of doing that, verse 8 gives us a little bit more um, instruction. Refrain from anger. <laughs> Turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. So get the situation right now. Circumstances are somewhat out of control. You have capabilities. You have skills. You can step in and fix this. But the characteristic of kingdom citizenship is this, to be meek. We've rolled it off of our shoulders onto his shoulders. We're not to roll it back on to ours. And we wait for him. But while we're waiting for him, we're in that in-between point of where there's the problem and he hasn't fixed it yet. Really tempting to get angry there. I'm frustrated. Oh, but I remember his ways are not my ways. They're higher than my ways. We refrain from adding fuel to the fire by responding in kind or by taking revenge. Because verse 9 says, For evil men will be cut off, but those who hope in the Lord, those who wait on the Lord, those who are meek, they will inherit the land. So finally, the meek believe that the evil men will be dealt with appropriately. We place our hope in God alone. Waiting with an eager expectation for God to act on our behalf. And knowing that when he does, we'll get more than we ever could possibly imagine. So seven steps to practical meekness. I could write a book. <laughs> or you could just write it down in Psalm 37. You too can be meek. Seven easy steps. Call now. But wait, there's more. <laughs> Operators are standing by. <laughs> call now. Operators are waiting. <laughs> and if you call right now, you can get meekness for you and one for your friend. <laughs> Same low price. Just pay shipping and handling. Um, boy, we, we watch way too many late night commercials, don't we? Because we all know the whole spiel. Just stick any product in there, and they just keep saying the same thing over and over again. So practical steps to meekness. These are the seven things laid out in Psalm 37. Trust, delight, commit, be still, wait patiently, refrain from anger, and hope. I know, it's easier said than done, right? It is, it's easier said than for me to do it. Like I said, God lets me take that test over and over again. This is why our minds need to be re renewed, because this is not, really, this isn't the way we think. It's not the way we've been trained. It's not the way we're wired. But it is the way of his kingdom. It's the kingdom way. It's the characteristics of kingdom citizens. Now, the truly meek are not weak, but they're really very strong. But their strength is yielded under submission to God's authority. It's submitted to healthy, holy, godly authority. Listen to me. The meek are not doormats. They're not to be abused by ungodly or unholy authorities. Don't hear what I'm not saying. 
in my humble opinion, okay, in Tom Zawacki's opinion, no one is required to follow a bad leader. No one. No one is required to submit to a bad leader. Unless God tells you to. Unless he tells you to. I don't believe that the default position is that you follow or submit to an unholy, an unrighteous, or an ungodly leader. Unless God tells you to. And Jesus' life is proof. Jesus' life is proof of that. Jesus' life is proof that sometimes submitting to God means that you have to endure ungodly leadership. It's why relationship is necessary. It's why intimate relationship with God is required to live this life. Because in intimate relationship with him, we know his heart. And we know when he's telling us to submit to a bad leader or not to submit to a bad leader. Meekness is trusting God to act on our behalf even when we have the power to do so ourselves. Jesus is the ultimate, authority, ultimate example of meekness. On the cross, at any moment, he could have called down 10,000 legions of angels to destroy the Roman soldiers and the religious leaders of his day. He could have easily resisted at any point of his beating or his crucifixion. He could have at any point resisted their unholy, ungodly authority. He had the power to do so. What the Romans did to him, what the religious figures of the day did to him was unholy. It wasn't right. It was wrong. And he had the power to stop them. But he didn't. Because of love. He didn't because his will was submitted to his father's authority in those situations. There was a higher authority operating, and it was the father's will. He was not, Jesus was not operating in submission, in meekness, to the will of unholy, ungodly human authorities. The Gospels show us repeatedly that Jesus didn't take any kind of crap from the scribes of Pharisees, right? He gave it back to them at every turn. He wasn't afraid of them. He wasn't intimidated by them. He was afraid of what they do to him. They were the only ones he gave a hard time to. So it wasn't like he was submitting to their unholy, their unrighteous, or their ungodly authority. So how do we explain the cross? The cross is meekness in action. He was submitted not to the scribes of Pharisees, not to the chief priests of the day, not to the Roman soldiers who beat him, but to his father's will. How do we know that? Because in the garden, Jesus expressed meekness by submitting his will to his father. Right? In the garden of Gethsemane, he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. He submitted his will to the father's will. To his last breath on the cross, Jesus exhibited meekness by submitting his will to his father's. His final words, he says, Father, 
Into your hands I commit. Here's that word commit again from Psalm 37. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And scripture says, and when he said this, he breathed his last. He was committed, he was submitted to the will of the Father. And in return, he saves all mankind. And so Philippians 2, 6-11 says, says of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. He became obedient. You could put the word meek there, to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. May we, in meekness, be just like Jesus. I'm almost done. I think there's some verses in Philippians 2 and Ephesians 4 that communicate well this concept of meekness. Paul writes to the church of Philippi, he says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort of his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. In the same vein, he writes to the church at Ephesus in chapter 4. He says, as a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you, to live a life worthy of the calling you receive. Be completely humble, gentle, meek. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I think we'd see far less spiritual abuse in the church if we could employ meekness in this way. If we were all submitted to the will of our Heavenly Father. So what's the benefit of meekness? We are joint heirs with Christ. All is his. Heaven and earth and all that's under the earth is his. Every knee bows because he's been exalted to the highest place. All's been given to him. As the meek, we inherit the earth. Everything we could have possibly wanted or tried to acquire in our own strength and more is ours. God's watching out for us. He'll protect our cause. The promise for the meek that they shall inherit the earth proves that God will not allow, he'll not allow his meek ones to end up on the short end of the stick. He won't let that happen. Because he's really good. And we can really trust him. So, kingdom citizens are characterized by being poor in spirit. They're humble. They're characterized by being mournful. 
They're broken. They're characterized by being meek. They're submissive and not vengeful. And to us, as citizens, belong the kingdom of heaven, the comfort of God, and we will inherit the earth. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for what you're doing. I thank you for your goodness and your kindness. Lord, it's not easy to be meek. It just goes against our grain. It's really hard for us to submit to you when in the process of doing it, we have to put up with scribes and Pharisees and Roman soldiers who want to beat us down. But Jesus, you're our example. Lord, I pray that you would help us to trust you. I pray that you would, as we're faced with the choice of trusting in ourselves or trusting you, I pray that we would be a people who repeatedly choose to trust you. And that in so doing, we would develop characteristics of kingdom citizens. Lord, I ask that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Now, our friend Reese is here with us today. I want you guys to greet him and give him a great big hug. Reese is working on a new project, a television program, where um, anybody seen Ghost Hunters? This is kind of a takeoff on that. So he got to shoot like a pilot for it here in New York City the past week or so, where he got to be a uh, spiritual advisor on this thing. And it was really, really cool. And so he got to be in town for that. So give Reese a great big hug. I love you guys. It's really great to be in town. See you tomorrow night at the book club, Tuesday night at the Spoon, and next Sunday here at church. Have a great day.